Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back. You're listening to Fem South, and I am your host, Lee. I'm so excited that you are joining me on the second part of our three-part series focusing on Christian feminism in the South. In the first episode, Shannon, my co-host, and I discussed the book New Feminist Christianity, Many Voices, Many Views, edited by Mary E. Hunt and Diana L. Nua. And so for the second podcast, this episode and the third episode, we're going out into the community to hear what women are thinking and saying about feminism, how it's being discussed or practiced in the church and in church communities. So my special guests today are Judith Comer and Jessica Dees. Judith Comer is an ordained minister. She's now retired, but she's been practicing in the local area. And Jessica Dees is a mother of four children, and she is a active member of her church and church community, and several of her kids go to a Christian school in the local area. So I'm very happy to have you both with me to get your perspective on this topic and to hear what women in our area, women who identify as Christian feminists, are thinking about Christian feminism and many of the various topics that were raised in the book that we're reading. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. We're glad to be here. Before we get started, uh, how about the two of you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? We can start with you, Judith, if you'd like. I'm Judith Comer. Uh, I'm a part of the baby boomer generation, and which means I'm older than dirt. I uh, have lived in the state of Alabama almost my entire life, and uh, through all of the changes that have happened in our nation and in that state in the last four or five decades or more, and I have gone through many uh, reinventions of myself, and one of those, and the last one, was to become uh, an ordained clergy person in the Episcopal Church. Uh, I'm an Episcopal priest. And I was ordained at age 61. And can you speak also really quickly on how you're also a, um, a Reiki practitioner and a yogi, and you do a lot of retreats and workshops outside of that center? Yes. Where you feel like you can and be. Exactly. I feel like I'm called to be able to get out on the edges. And to me, it's not really the edge, but for a lot of people, it would be outside the boundaries of the church. But there are spiritual disciplines that I found outside the Christian tradition that have really fed me spiritually and helped me connect at a deeper level with God. Yoga is one of them, and it's a wonderful practice, and it's, for me, it's a very much a spiritual practice. And the other is Reiki, and uh, when I was in seminary, 
A friend of mine was a Reiki master. She was also in seminary. In fact, she wrote a book called The Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Reiki, saying it's really all the same spirit. It's all the same energy. And, um, and so I became a Reiki practitioner, and I find that too. Again, I used it in my ministry when I was a priest uh, actively at my parish, particularly with people who were uh, being treated for cancer. I did Reiki with a lot of those people. And I'm Jessica Dees. I am about to be 43 years old. I'm a mother of four, and my husband and I live here in the Fairhope area. We both grew up here, didn't know one another, met in our college years, and um, married and, and have raised our family here. And so this is home. I did leave the area for college and work for a time as a young adult. When I went away to school, I attended Georgetown University. And while I was there, I studied political theory with a minor in theology. I was very involved in my home church growing up, Spanish Fort Presbyterian, and was a big church nerd. And the church has always been a big part of my life. And and it still is today, even though I'm no longer in the Presbyterian church. Um, my husband is Catholic. Our kids go to Catholic school. And we worship at an Anglican congregation, some kind of a hodgepodge of uh, just a lot of intersecting points within the Christian tradition. And it still is a big part of my life and something I'm very grateful for. But as I've grown, um, there's just things that, that, that I struggle with, but, but still wholeheartedly embrace it as, as my tradition. And, and um, I'm happy to share my story. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have you here. Before we really get into some of the questions I have prepared for us to kind of talk about, how about we just sort of break the ice with talking about how we felt about the book? I was intrigued because the reading that I've done prior to this on feminism uh, and Christian feminism was all back in the 60s when it was all first began in the 60s and 70s. And I wasn't really particularly turned on by what was being said then. And I was younger, much younger, and didn't have a lot of experience to go on to, to base my uh, reflections on the books that were coming out at that time. And that in seminary, we really did not talk much about feminism. This was interesting. We, I was at Sewanee. There were not a lot of electives, and we really did not focus on feminism. And I was so busy just trying to do the core curriculum and, and get through that that I really didn't uh, think about it a lot. The most we th I thought about it was the fact that in my class, we had half women and half men, and it changed the dynamics of our class considerably. We had a much kinder, gentler class than some of the classes ahead of us. And in fact, some the women in the two classes ahead of me at Swanee experienced a lot of misogyny and a lot of racism. And one of them, who was a black female, left and went to another seminary because of it. And so there was a big controversy at Swanee at the time I was there about uh, feminism and about racism, but it was not, there were not courses being taught. And so even when we, uh, I had a course in theology, even the, the theological courses that I took in theology itself, 
those courses gave you an opportunity to choose a theologian you might want to explore what they had to say and who they were. But there were just a few women in that list. So it was, there was a blip, and that was it. If you got a blip, it was only because someone in the class chose a woman theologian to study and report on. And so I was thrilled over this, and I learned a new word. I had never heard the word curiarchy. That was new for me. And I, and I really loved and resonated with the idea that all of these isms and all of these things that are, are oppressive and dominant in our culture that oppress people, but also all, of course, oppress women and impact women's lives. And so, of course, it's all one package. It's not just one thing. It's not just um, male patriarchy and misogyny. Well, I am finding the book super fascinating. And really, it's just, I think, going to be a launching point for me on just things I need to read more about. <laughs> and I've I've learned so much just like Judith shared, you know, new terms and new perspectives. And it's just really a little overwhelming, to be honest, just because it is also new to me, which is a little embarrassing to say as someone who has grown up in the Christian tradition and was a theology minor, you know, the, the whole topic of feminism was not something that I was overtly exposed to. But on the flip side of that, it's because a lot of the work had been done within my denomination prior to my birth. And so when I grew up in the church in our particular congregation and denomination, women were already pastors and ordained. Women were elders. And the whole question of those questions were already answered in the bubble that I grew up in. And so I didn't I didn't grow up feeling othered or secondary or oppressed. Now as a grown up, you know, I realized just because I didn't feel those things in my experience doesn't mean they don't exist and they aren't real in a broader sense. And I'm just so grateful that, that I'm, I'm learning these things and hearing these voices that are so edifying and just helping me be connected to the whole body of Christ in terms of just the church universal. And, and I just want to read more and learn more. So, so I'm very grateful that, that this book came on my, my radar and that, that I'm, I'm part of the, the um, dialogue and conversation. Yeah, thank you. And I, I would just like to say of the three here, I represent, I would say, someone who is a feminist who is not in the church. I grew up in the church, but at this point right now, I don't consider myself religious. So I, I have this sort of outside perspective, if you will. So I want to ask two questions that kind of hit at why we're doing this podcast in, in, in studying this text in the first place, which is reconciling differences perhaps between feminism and Christianity and seeing where we can reach across what seems like to uh, opposite ends of the spectrum and work together, which although that may not really be true, I think that this book is showing that that's not necessarily true at all, right? So my first question then is, why should feminists continue to participate in Christianity given that it has a long legacy of persecuting and marginalizing women and worship some male God? Well, I would suggest that if we used uh, the criterion that uh, if something is oppressive to women that we should opt out of it, that we would just have to opt out of the human race. 
because it's pervasive in every aspect of our life on this earth. But looking at what is in the church for women, I have to go back to my own personal experience and what I've experienced. Even though the church that I grew up in was certainly, I know, uh, full of white supremacist and racism and misogyny, it was also formative to me in some very critical ways. In spite of those things, the love of God for me came through. I experienced the love of Jesus and a relationship with God from the very from the time I was a child. And those relationships that I formed in my youth group, the people that were in that youth group then that I formed relationships that got me through adolescence, I still am in contact with a number of those people. Those are relationships that have continued forward. And what holds us together is that we, ought, we have this commonality in knowing God and trusting God and finding the necessity of that relationship to live. And, and that we, I find that um, my evolution as a Christian has changed quite a bit. I'm not um, nearly as hung up on doctrine and what people believe and what intellectual assertions we have about God, but more into my experience of God and my experience that is in common with other people. I don't believe that God is either male or female, but I do believe that God is personal and relational and that those uh, words that reflect gender about God do resonate with us in terms of that, that God is personal and relational and not some kind of blob or it. So I want to find a better way to include the feminine within our uh, language about God, because I think we're formed by language and that our uh, daughters and, and granddaughters are being formed by what they hear in church. And it's critical that we change the language to reflect a more feminine understanding of God, that uh, it is both and that we are created in God's image, both male and female and all kinds of things in between. And so we need to, I'd like to keep that, but find a better way to express it. You know, we, we just don't need to put God in a box. God is out there in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of people. And we just have to be open to finding and exploring that rather than being afraid to get out of the box. So I'm, I'm going to hang on to the church because of what I've experienced and because I believe that we were given the church, as imperfect and flawed as it is, we were given it to be a community of faith that um, blesses us. Many instances bless the world in spite of all the flaws and things that it's done that have been destructive, that there's both. It's a, it's a mixed bag. I guess I don't know that I really have an overarching you know, answer. I don't really feel like it's my job to convince anyone to to leave or to stay you know i can certainly see why why people would exit because the church has a lot of baggage that's unholy and ugly and i by no means want to defend any of that because it's part of the the underbelly of the reality of a human 
you know, of humans who are part, who make up the church, that there's, there's darkness and, and pain. Um, so I can't really give an overarching answer. And I don't know that I really want to. For me, my experience in the church has, has been one of such great love and nourishment that I can't turn my back on that. You know, that in my home church that I grew up in, we were a family and we loved one another. And so I learned about love and the nature of love and the nature of God's love specifically, that it is, that it's real, that, that I am beloved and that everyone else is too. And in my tradition, that didn't exclude people who weren't Christian, you know, that that the message I received was we are God's beloved children, all of us, everyone, no exceptions. And that sank in because of the relationships I had with the other church members, my parents' closest friends. It wasn't just, we didn't just show up on Sundays and all and then walk out the door. I mean, we were in relationship with one another. I had bonus grandparents that we would break bread with and celebrate holidays with, and we would see them in the hospital and we would help them out when they needed help. And it was this relational reality that I can't deny that was so formative and enriching for me personally. And that's what I hold on to. And because I experienced it firsthand. And I was lucky enough, again, to be in an environment where we weren't talking about can women preach, we weren't talking about, you know, men is the headship of the home, like it just wasn't, that wasn't what we were about. And so I can claim the tradition and sort of have forgiveness for those other parts because they weren't directly impacting me. But I can understand if they, if you were in a tradition where it was, you know, you were being told that you're second class citizens essentially, and that, you know, where love wasn't manifesting in real and personal and beautiful ways like it was for me, then I get why. <laughs> you would need to leave. I mean, I see it again in a relational context. Like, you know, I don't expect perfection in my personal friendships and relationships, but I do expect to not be harmed. And so that's kind of how I'm, how I view my relationship with the church is for me, it's a, it's a beautiful reality and community that I'm a part of, and I'm grateful to be a part of, and it's enriching in so many ways. And so if there are times, and there are, where I'm frustrated or irritated, I can, I can rest in the relational realities that, that I can't deny and offer forgiveness and grace and engage in a loving conversation on those areas where I struggle. But I certainly understand that my experience isn't everyone else's experience. And so I'm not going to try to convince anyone who's had a totally different experience from mine. You know, my experience, which was, of course, I'm a lot older than you are. Yeah. So it's a different decades that I was growing up right. in the church. But the church 
I was growing up in a different decade or decades than you were in the church, but I wasn't harmed by the church in ways that I know a lot of people are. Right. I know that there are people who have grown up in denominations where they were just injured by emotionally and in a lot of other ways by the church and in, in what they were being taught and, and particularly about women and how what they were told about who they were and their secondary role, not only in the church, but uh, in life and that what they could not do. And, and a lot of really things that just are oppressive to be a part of it. I was part, I grew up in the Methodist church. It was a very loving, you know, there wasn't all of that heavy duty. We didn't have all that going to heaven and hell thing and being saved thing, right. being preached from a pulpit in the Methodist church. So I never experienced all of that, which for me would have been damaging. Um, and like I said, there wasn't all this heavy thing on the headship of the man and the family and all that. That was not really talked about very much. I got it later on from some quarters, but but not in the church. And so I, I'm like you, Jessica. I kind of escaped all of that. But now on a more subtle level, there were things going on. One, there were no women in grow in my generation. There were no women ministers in the church, and we were told we could be deaconesses, but not ordained clergy as head of churches. And I didn't know what to do with that because I've always felt called, and I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that I was called, and it took a long time for me myself to believe that that was okay, that I could really be and was a minister and a priest. And what really did it for me was a uh, Don Armentrout, who was a church history professor at Swanee, he said it better than anyone for me. He said, it wasn't Jesus' maleness that saved us. It was his humanity, his being fully human. And a woman is just as fully human as any man and so if it had been his maleness that saved us, all women would have gone to hell, which at one point that was uh, uh, discussed in the early centuries of the church, whether women were saved or not. But they did decide we were saved after all, in spite of Eve, that myth. But when I realized that when I stood at that altar to celebrate the Eucharist, that I represented just as fully God to humanity and humanity to God as any male could do. And it was, in my femaleness, that was a good thing. Not only an okay thing, but a good thing and that I could fully represent humanity. That sealed the deal for me. I finally came into my own. It was like something came into me and said, you are okay. You're worthy. You're, you're equal. And, and, but it took that word and I, and it's like there again, we get back to words and language and how important they are for girls to hear in the church. And I didn't get all of that growing up. And the language in the church today is still very male-oriented. And that is the one thing I would really like to see changed because it does help form who we are. Not only does it help, it forms girls, but it also forms boys and how they think of women when everything is so male dominated. Right. And and the language certainly in my home church in childhood experience was 
male dominated for sure. And I guess, or I, I think that I just w- didn't overly internalize that because there were women in the black robes leading on Sundays. There were women leading as elders. And I just, I didn't, I mean, I remember learning in grammar in school. That's when it, it was across the board. It wasn't just in the church. It was, you know, ma- when you were writing a paper, you could use the term man and mankind. You know, we just, that, so I didn't really see it as a church problem or really, I just kind of ex- accepted it as like, well, that's just the way the language works. But obviously I have a more evolved opinion now and agree that we can can and should do more work in that arena. But for me, it just, it didn't internalize because we had the women in front of me serving and leading. Yeah, I think it makes a difference what environment you grew up in. And Judith, I really like how you pointed out the more subtle ways in which misogyny and male-centered language affected you. Not believing that you could or deserve to take a leadership position, even though you knew it was right for you and ultimately good for the church. I mean, I think it's these subtleties, right, that are important to talk about. We, I mean, we read um, over the last year in our book club, we read Sarah Bleak's book entitled Red Hot and Holy and Clarissa Pinkola Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, and uh, both of which talk about finding female archetypes that we connect with that really embody the full range of female experience. But I think this is also true across all forms of marginalization, race, gender, sexuality. We're looking for archetypes that represent our experiences and not some other thing that not only can we not identify with, but that on some level makes us question you know, the value of who we are or our worth. Well, when I first visited the current church where I attend, it was in a women's group. I wasn't going there on Sundays, but I'd been invited by a friend to to come to this women's study group, book study group. And the priest came in on our first meeting to just welcome us all there. And he shared something that day that I was both so grateful to know, but also just so outraged that I'd never heard before as a very, you know, educated person and hyper-Christian. And he told us, you know, again, we're a group of women. And he said, I want to dig into the word, uh, the whole, you know, the idea of the Holy Spirit. And he took us through like Genesis and some different areas where the word for like the breath, that God breathed and there the spirit hovering over the waters. And, and I'm totally botching this. Please don't quote me on, on any of this. This is my very hyper summarized recollection of that memory, but the nuts and bolts of it was basically that it was a female word in the Hebrew for the, the Holy spirit. And, and that was like, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful and awesome, but why the hell have we not heard this before? And why don't we hear this like from the pulpit? So I think it's there. It's just been suppressed for so long. And so that, that again was a really beautiful, but also sad moment for me. I'm like, I, so yes, you're right that, that there, even though my 
direct experience was not one of feeling second class or other that that doesn't mean that I wasn't impacted in ways and and that moment just kind of highlighted you know what that reality for me and so we do need to do more work in reclaiming and and I that's why I loved reading this book was just hearing these voices hearing voices that have not been sanctioned or heard by the Christian community on a large or official scale. I think where I've experienced the most about how the church has kind of worked into women's subconscious and they don't even realize how it's affecting them is in women's reaction to women being ordained. Because you would think that women would be really excited about women being ordained. And a lot of them are. I mean, there are times when I'm in that role and girls and women come up to me, they've never seen a woman minister or heard a woman preach or seen a woman celebrate, and they are so excited. But then there are these other women who are just do not want a woman in that role. And I see something about their identification of themselves doesn't believe that they're worthy of being in that role and somehow we they need to be subservient to men and it's very interesting because they will dig in their heels in ways about this it's an identity issue for them whereas for men I found a lot of times it's just a competency issue if you can do the job then okay you can do it but not with the women yeah I mean I think this is a really good point to talk about feminist theology, because as you say, women who have internalized misogyny can be our own worst enemies. And it's often said in the book, you can't just add women and stir. So even if you ordain women, it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's going to change within the institution itself. So do you think that a feminist theology can restore the balance between the masculine and the feminine? Do you think it's critical? I think we, as image bearers, our voices matter. And so whether we're man or woman, that we have important insights to contribute to our collective understanding of God, the holy, divine, that that all voices matter. And if if certain voices are just discounted, then we have an imbalance problem of we're only getting, it's not to say that the masculine voice is not important. It's just not the only voice. And so I do think that that would be a really restorative and worthwhile endeavor and, and we need it. And that's again, why I'm so excited to have read this book because I'm like, so st- I see how starved I've been and um, I want to, I want to hear these voices and, and just gain a, a bigger understanding. You know, Richard Rohr, who I read a lot of, and he's just right now my favorite Christian writer. He talks about God. It's not that God isn't knowable, but it's also not that God is like finitely knowable. And and that I think Christianity's kind of fallen into that box of like, these are the things we know of God and that's that. And it, the book is closed and that's all been from a male voice for the most part. And what he says is that 
that God is infinitely knowable. And so that there's always something more you can learn. And so that's what I want. I want to, I want to hear these voices so that I can know, know more and more and get closer and closer to something that I will never fully be able to, to understand. But I certainly won't understand it if I shut voices out and refuse to, to listen and, and look for God's voice in those around me. I see patriarchy very connected to hierarchy and that the structure of the church and a lot of world systems is a hierarchy that you start at the bottom and you work your way up. And along with that, of course, is gone. Let me step on other people's shoulders. And if I push them off the ladder, that's okay because I'm making my way up. And that kind of power is what we've seen so much in the world and in the church. And what I see more of a feminine response or or way of looking at the world is more of a collaboration and working together and more of a consensus, which is certainly reflected in this book that we read. And we have not had a lot of that in the world in church in terms of making decisions uh, regarding government or or the church or whatever. Even in things like uh, our government, which is supposedly, you know, democratic, but there's still a lot of hierarchy there and um, a lot of politics. And so I'd like to see uh, a more feminine impact on how structures are actually formed and work, because I think that would change the world. And I certainly saw it in my seminary class, the effect of having so many women in that class made a difference in how things were done. And I think it's true in the church that the more women that are involved, the more likelihood there is for change, which is why I say stay, you know, stay and take these leadership roles because you may not have an impact now, but the more women there are, the more impact you can have. And hopefully what women will do is not buy into what is, quote, seen as a male way of doing things or a hierarchy. Hopefully women will buy into a more, what I see as a more feminine way of structuring uh, the church and the world. I heard Margaret Mead speak back in the early 70s, and she was quite clear that if women wanted to take leadership roles in the church, she was all for it as long as they didn't want to just become men leaders in the church or priests, but that they had something to offer that was different. And I do think women bring something to the table that is different, but I think it's important to take our place at the table. And so that's one another reason why I stick with the church. And fascinatingly enough, in the last few years, the Episcopal Church is electing more and more women as bishops. There is just this huge influx of bishops being elected in the Episcopal Church who are women as, and they're being elected as the diocesan bishop. That is a huge thing. And I think those women are going to have a big impact on the ch- church because they are in a position to do that. So I'm all for getting a balance here between women and men in leadership in the church so that it really can change the structure itself, the institution. Right. And 
and I also just want to say that if, you know, if I were talking to someone, you know, who might other might look at me and say, I cannot believe she is part of the church. You know, there are plenty of congregations I would have nothing to do with. And I think the caricature or I don't know if caricature is the right word, but the predominant narrative of Christianity that's visible and shown in the media and in the culture is the more fundamentalist right-wing version of Christianity. And I would just encourage anyone who might be curious to, to just not mistake the whole tradition for parts of the tradition. And so I am in a place where I feel that I am loved and respected and that I'm, my children are, are learning the things that, that I learned in, in my early church experience. And if that weren't the case, I would be out the door. So, you know, there's, there's that. Yeah. And I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break and come back and talk about the hijacking of Christianity by these more fundamental right-wing political sect of Christianity. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast. I've been talking with my two friends, Judith Comer and Jessica Deese, about Christian feminism. So I think one of the big challenges Christian feminists, womanists, women in the church are up against is the hijacking of Christianity by a white, heteronormative, conservative, political sect of Christianity. In Alabama and many other southern states, politicians in the name of Christianity are full-on attacking women's reproductive rights, trans rights, and the rights of the LGBTQT plus community. And so I want to read real quick an excerpt from one of the essays in the book entitled Race, Class, Gender, Sexuality, Integrating the Diverse Politics of Identity into Our Theology by W. Ann Jaw. Quote, how do we theologize the unequivocal fact that too often my comfort is at the expense of others' discomfort? How do we reflect on the truth that whatever small sense of invulnerability we think we have achieved is accomplished by maintaining a predatory stance toward others. Amid so much dismay, violence, and suffering, what might a feminist theological vision encompass? 
How might we participate in the unmaking and remaking of this world into one that is hospitable to all who live in it? How do we hold despair and hope together? End quote. And I think I would add to that, how do Christian feminists and women in the church push back against this dominant narrative? Well, for me, yeah, I, I don't have like an overarching like, this is what we should do. But for me, where I am in my journey is... A, being seen. People know that my faith and my going to church and that it's a huge part of my life. If you know me, you know that. And I feel that it's important for me to use my voice. Again, that, you know, in my, as a nine on the Enneagram, I'm a peace lover and my nature is to just like not speak up if there's anything that might be somewhat controversial. So I'm trying to put into practices now through social media, you know, in my conversations with friends and with my priests, with whomever, that if there is something that I see that bothers me, how can I speak to it in a way that reflects my faith and calls out things that I might feel are problematic, all the things you've just listed, you know, and how how do I do that? How do I engage in a way that feels authentic and loving, non-condemning, but also just shows like if there's anyone in my social media network that might be in a more fundamentalist in church congregation that would otherwise say, if you don't believe like our church does, then you're not a Christian. I want to be that person that they think, well, she's a Christian, And I know by the what she's posting and sharing and the way she's engaging that she doesn't buy into all of these things. So I don't know if that person's out there, you know, but that's like the imaginary person I've tried to speak to. Well, that's funny because when you're not a Christian and you live in this area and because there's so much association with what's going on now in the world with Christianity, you walk around looking at people who are walking into their church wondering, well, where do they stand? Yeah. And you don't know. And how do you engage with those people? And you're in the ministry. And I know that you have been in charge of churches with a mixed bag of people. And Mm -hmm. certainly you've had people in your congregation that you know fall on that camp. So how do you speak to that? How do you deal with that? It's really difficult because when you are in charge of a congregation and you are charged with the spiritual care of or cure of souls in your church, and you have a mixed bag of folks, some of whom you disagree with vehemently, particularly about politics, that gets mixed in with their religious views, uh, you're at a real bind. Because as the leader of a parish, if you take a strong stand either way, then you have disenfranchised the other half. So you're caught. And so what I found to be true is that encouraging people to understand that we are all in this together, that we all are loved by God, regardless of where we stand and whether we're, quote, right or wrong about it, but that we are beloved and we are all loved and we are called to love each other. And sometimes that means loving that person who you vehemently disagree with. 
politically and even often even about religious views in the same church? And how do you hold the whole together and at the same time stand firm in what you believe as an individual? And that's, that's the tightrope that a priest walks when they're in charge of a congregation, is holding the body together and still maintaining their own integrity. And I, there are always good arguments for any issue. And so always looking at what the side that is opposed to what I believe, looking at the arguments on that side of the issue, finding the best ones, and listening to what people have to say in the most favorable light, and mirroring back to them in that regard. Because people need to be heard. And often when they're heard, then they're more willing to look at what you have to say that's different from what they believe. And really just the idea that we have a relational God and that it's a loving, relational dynamic. And that if we can, in our interactions with people, try to model that and come from a place of loving relationship that there's no necessary, like, I can't change minds. I'm not even going to try, but can I be in loving relationship with you? And those, to me, that's what we need to be asking and living out instead of, like, debating and changing minds. And love will precede any kind of conversion. And it's just been under-highlighted, I think, in the church's whole, like, theological posture we've been about convincing and converting and coming from the top and like our ideas precede our relationship and it's backwards. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I don't, and, and, but again, that's sort of maddening to our, our whole cultural paradigm of like conquering and being number one and at the top and how can we change things from the top? And I just am challenged by Jesus. Like, That's not the model we're supposed to be following. He, some of his followers wanted him to do that, and he refused. He wasn't about that. And with that, I think it's important that we recognize our own privilege, because it's not good enough to just say that because that hasn't happened to me, that that isn't true for somebody else. Because I've never been traumatized in the church that People don't get discriminated against every day in the church. So I think we have an obligation to always be um, engaged with other people, listening to other people's experiences and validating those experiences. And with that comes also an understanding that there's more than one way to to have a spiritual path. There's There's more than one way to lead a spiritual life. And so we can work with and honor and respect other religions as well, because the alternative to that, what we are seeing with so many people in the church is, you know, fear of the other, Uh, homophobia, xenophobia, racism, misogyny, sexism, all the isms. So I think that education is key because, you know, fear is really a product of ignorance Yeah. And I think that's a problem like with the culture at large, like just, well, humanity, like othering and racism. I mean, it's just, that's our default and it's a problem in the church, but it's a problem outside the church too, you know? And so I I think, I hope that we are 
continuing, you know, Martin Luther King said, we're on the arc towards justice. It's just a long and ugly one. And we just kind of have to keep hopefully pressing on. And I just have to hope that over time that yes, education and those types of encounters will be fewer and far between, but we're not there yet. I mean, it's just been shocking to me since, you know, the current political scene and just that for me to just really realize like we are so far from being healed in that realm in the church and outside of the church that um, we just need to press in and work towards restoration and, and, and suppressing those types of false narratives that are damaging. That whole idea that it's not about an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs, but it's all about relationships really matters in the church and the world. And this idea of how do we change, and, and I like what you had to say, Jessica, about witness. It's our, it's our own witness by the way we live our lives and what we do that changes people's hearts and minds and, and, and encourages them to look and see what is it in this person's life that is making a difference? What is it that's helping this person to be a loving person, mm-hmm. a forgiving person, a person full of gratitude? What is it? And, and to me, that's our Christian witness. But then we turn to, you know, then how does this relate to other religions and other faiths, which is a kind of question we got to. And I think that so often there's been this thing of you either belong or you don't belong. You're either in or you're either out. And this is really problematic because we're all in this together. We're all a part of the human race. And we have had different experiences and we've experienced God in different ways too. And the assumption is always this this, this kind of exclusionary religious stance we're having to relook at that as the Christian faith. And, and the problem is that we've got a huge group of people that are very fundamentalist and are still very exclusionary in their understanding of what it means to be a Christian and are all out to try to and save they're, everybody. They're and dominating the, the narrative, and too. And they're dominating the narrative at this point. And yet, there is also a sizable group of Christians who are not there. And I think the tendency has been is to let this other fundamentalist narrative dominate the airwaves and everything rather than people who believe something very different about who Jesus was and what he came to do uh, are not as vocal or are not getting the airtime that this other group is getting. And I was so pleased to see um, that there are some people that are have some influence uh in the church that are not this fundamentalist group who are now coming out and saying, this is where I stand and this is why. And I think that's critical too, because it makes a difference when someone who's got some real, quote, authority uh, takes a stand against this other. You know, I always get caught. We want to be collaborative. We want to reach consensus. But at some point, where do we, where do we say, this is where I stand? And, and say it with the authenticity of our life. So with everything that we've been talking about, though, it's really easy to theoretically talk about change. But what are some practical things that the everyday woman can do within their faith communities to make change? 
Well, what I'm trying to do in my personal walk is to pay attention to my my inner voice. So if I am bothered by something, what does that mean? Does that it usually means I need to speak out about it in some way. And so I'm just trying to pay attention to things that I am noticing that bother me and then proceed in a loving relational way to talk about it with those who might have influence. And so that's kind of the paradigm I'm trying to to put in place in my life and it and it has been fruitful for me. There have been some conversations I've had with my priest about different words used in our liturgy, and we've been able to just have an open and honest conversation about different terms. And I have freedom when I give the prayers of the people to to add my own words. And so that's been really beautiful and and helpful. I I, I do think that by voicing what's inside of me, that it is resonating with others. And so that's really, it's nothing big. It's not like I'm, you know, changing things on the denominational level, but I'm using my voice in meaningful ways in my community, in the way that I pray and lead the church in prayers and in conversations I'm having with my priests. And and it sounds silly, but it's really hard for me as a nine. So that's that's where I am right now is just trying to do that. I don't think it sounds silly at all. I think a lot of people have a, f- a fear of speaking up in their congregation, which is why we don't hear it more often. And maybe that's why it's really important for me to take my place at the table in the pulpit to, um, so that a, a woman's voice is heard. And it's really interesting. And there, there are two fronts that I see, my, or maybe three, that I see where I feel like I'm having an impact and, and making a difference. One. I have a clerical collar, and on one hand, there's sometimes a conflict about you're kind of joining the good old boys club if you wear that collar, but on the other hand, there is also something about being seen in the community in that collar, because it says to people, here is a woman in ministry and in the church, and so, and I think that's important that that's seen at times. There are other times when it's important not to wear the collar. So uh, I have to discern when it's, when to do it and when not to. It's interesting about preaching because I think a woman's voice is different. And, and the way you do it, not, and, and it, it's a very delicate balance. But I always preach from the word. But often I address contemporary issues in my sermons. But what I've been told is that I have a way of being able to address those issues and say the truth in light of the gospel without being divisive and without putting people on the defensive. I think that my ability to preach without being putting people on the defensive and being divisive has to do with the nuances of how I'm able to address those issues and what I have to say. And I do believe that that has to do with my feminine voice. And the other thing that I think is important is I believe that we need to get out of the walls of the church and be out in the community and listening to people and hearing people and experiencing people outside the church bubble. And that is really important to me. And I've been amazed at how many people are drawn to me when they find out I'm a woman minister. 
and the stories they tell me, their life stories or their narratives, but it's really important for me to hear those and to affirm those, these people, especially these women. So that's where I find myself. So with that being said, do you think that the church is going to need to change in order to move forward and not be left behind? Absolutely. And I know a lot of what we're experiencing, I believe, in the, in fundamentalism and this real rigid stance in the church has to do with people who are scared to death of this change. They're afraid of what it means. And they're seeing churches empty out and pews empty, and they're scared to death that the church will die. And I don't believe that the church will die because the church is not these buildings and these pews and the institution. The church originally was a group of people who had been changed by their encounter with Jesus and their lives turned upside down to the point that they were willing to die for what, they, what they'd experienced to, in order to witness for it. And those relationships and that faith community, that's the church. All of the institutional stuff that's baggage that we've added on through the centuries, it's going to fall away, I believe. And what's going to be left is going to be that kernel of truth it's going to be built on relationships that have to do with encountering Jesus and his love and bringing that into the world. And so, yes, I think the church will absolutely have to change in order to be the church in this century and the next. I agree. And it'll change, but I think it will be for the good. And because you can't take away the root that is good, that is the love of God. I mean, those things won't be shaken and everything else you know if it if it dies then i'm a i'm a resurrection believer i believe in new life after death so if things need to die let them die and and that doesn't scare me or intimidate me i would like to add to that the idea of reconciliation for women we have yet to recognize and reconcile what the church has done to women still in some con- some denominations still refuse to allow women to stand in front of men and preach the word of God. So I would really love to see a project on reconciliation for women in- within the church. Me too. That'd be good. <laughs> I really appreciate you being on this podcast with me and opening up to this discussion with me. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. So you've been listening to FemSouth Podcast. We are a podcast, book club, and community dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women. We believe that through feminist theory, through a comprehensive study of women's history, and through current dialogue, women can transform and heal. We would love for you to subscribe to our newsletter at www.femsouth.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and join our private Facebook book club group. You can also support us at Patreon. We have all kinds of tiers of support. So for as little as $1 a month, you can help us continue to support women in the South and provide quality content. And we would also really love for you to download and subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating. This is Lee and you're listening to Them South.